This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Can you dig it? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I'm I'm back. I'm tanned. I'm rested and ready. Um, sort of like Nixon in '80. Um, so, uh, and I'm very excited to have as a return guest when we last, last, and I believe first had him on, people said, oh, you should have him on a lot more. And not only did we start it, not only did I not follow through and have him on a lot more, but I did to make up for it. We did sign him up to write a newsletter for the dispatch. So I think that compensates a little bit. I'm talking about, uh, the author of the current for the dispatch, um, uh, Klon Kitchen, who's also my colleague at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, Klon, welcome back. Hey, Jonah. Good to be here. I don't want to get all super jargony, but it's, there's, in, in, in my world, a bunch of stuff that has happened recently that me and my peers generally call Klon stuff. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, uh, you know, this weird intersection of sort of cyber tech and national security and, and more broadly, uh, China stuff, right? Um, uh, so, like, there have been a couple of exposés. You sent me this thing this morning about the Chinese have been trying to put uh, assets in the Federal Reserve. Um, there was a story last week about from CNN about them trying to put spying equipment near, um, you know, in the capital, elsewhere in the capital. Um, um, so, like, maybe we just sort of begin with a, what are they up to? kind of question. So what are they up to? So I'm, I'm currently in the midst of a little bit of a, um, kind of low mode depression mode, because all of this has been coming out here recently. And, um, as it often feels like, you know, the, 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 the guy screaming into the wind on this. And I wonder sometimes, um, yeah, how do I break through? So, so the 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 thing that's going on right now, and that's becoming increasingly clear, is that China, for at least a decade or more, has you know put into place a pretty comprehensive and I think effective, like society level espionage effort uh, against the United States, and um, we've we've slowly woken up to it. And we're realizing the scale of it, um, and and that government realization of the scale is making its way into the public. Uh, and so, some of the the recent revelations uh, include what you mentioned. So, there was a CNN report uh, that included a couple of different aspects of this story. One of it was back in 2017, the Chinese offered to build this beautiful Chinese garden uh, near the Capitol, and it was going to include this, you know, 70 foot tall uh, white pagoda and 
all kinds of, I'm sure it was going to be beautiful and we would have all enjoyed walking through it. It just turns out that the materials that they were going to use to build this pagoda, the Chinese wanted to send via diplomatic pouches, which meant <laughs> that it wouldn't, it wouldn't be investigated. It couldn't be searched. Uh, there was other indicators that said, hey, they're going to be using this for digital spying. They're, they're going to be able to eavesdrop. They're going to put antennas and other kinds of clutch capabilities on top of this thing. And it would be it was scheduled to be on one of the highest positions um, in in DC, which would have made it ideal for collecting all kinds of information, uh, government and, and you and me and, and everybody else. So that that was one report. But Can I stop very, you on that one for just two seconds? I mean, yeah, I don't want to break your chain of thought, but like, no, go. As a matter of tradecraft, um, I don't understand why they had to send so much of that stuff through diplomatic pouches. You'd think that like. And why they had to do it in a way that we noticed it was in diplomatic pouches, right? I mean, it sort of reminds me of the old Superman TV show where they deliver, where the villain deliberately hides the thing that Superman is looking for in a lead box. And Superman is like, well, that's the one thing I can't see through. It must be in there. Um, presumably, you don't need to send the construction materials from China for a pagoda. And you could send the, the sort of dummy, the, the normal looking stuff through normal traffic to get it inspected and then send other stuff through, you know, diplomatic pouches at a more in, inconspicuous interval. It just, it seemed to me like that aspect of it struck me as like a contradiction of the incredibly sophisticated claims about China's espionage, because it seems to me I could have said, Hey, maybe this isn't the way to do it, but maybe I'm missing something. Yeah, it's hard to know. I, it's one of those things where, um, there's likely a number of factors that led to that. So one, it was 2017. We weren't really kind of on the beat. Who knows how many other yeah, times they had done something similar like this. And they're right, like, hey, this, right. this works great, you know, and, right. and, it, and let's keep doing it. That's there may have been some operational uh, rationale. So like, I imagine that the the kind of sneaky stuff that they had to get in was probably so well integrated into the materials themselves, like kind of like stuck in the middle of boards kind of thing, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that they felt like, okay, the only way to get this in without the spy stuff being uh, discovered is, is through diplomatic pouches, but we've so deeply integrated it into the materials that now we've got to figure out a rationale for kind of sending the materials that way. I, Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's there's probably a number of things. Um, but you see what I mean, right? I mean, Oh, yeah, it doesn't yeah. make, yeah, exactly yeah, right. Yeah, it yeah. invites scrutiny, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, right, so back to the the parade of horribles that China is doing. Yeah, yeah. okay, so, you know, <laughs> you had that. And then you also have this reporting. This is something that a lot of us have been talking about for a while, but it was a good reminder in the CNN report about how um, Chinese tech companies, particularly Huawei, but not only Huawei, had been um, placing equipment on things like cell towers and camera towers and things like that all around the country, even in, in kind of middle parts of the country, but all strategically positioned near uh, important military, U.S. military facilities, including some of our uh, nuclear missile silos and other strategic command. U.S. Strategic Command is the military command that uh, is in charge of all of our nuclear forces. Um, and, and so one of the things that we discovered was that there was a little box on top of the cell towers that was not only able to intercept. So the military operates in specific um, bands um, of, of spectrum, and those are reserved for the military. Uh, so that they can't be disrupted, and and so they always have enough bandwidth to, to communicate the way they need to. 
Well, this little magic box that Huawei built and put on top of um, these cell towers was able to intercept communications traffic in that band and potentially disrupt communications in that band. And what that means is, is that had they ever wanted to, it's possible that the Chinese could have disrupted our ability uh, to you know, use and communicate about and leverage our strategic forces, possibly even uh, disrupting what we call command and control, the, you know, the way we, the way we use these things. That's a big freaking deal. Like that, that, like it doesn't get much bigger than that. Right. And when you think about what they had to do to get there, uh, all they had to do was convince uh, some of the, the local telecommunications companies that, Hey, you know, we'll, we'll say you are cellular infrastructure pretty cheap cheaper than anybody else, and um, and just put it up. And so they did. And, you know, we're, we're discovering that. And so all this fits into a broader conversation that people like Christopher Ray, the director of FBI, have, have been very loud and proud about here recently. But they say, look, you know, from a, from a cybersecurity perspective, the Chinese effort inside the United States is larger than every other major peer competitor combined. They are stealing more intellectual property than has ever occurred in the history of the world. And they're opening a new counterintelligence um, investigation into the Chinese approximately every 24 hours. So we just have this systemic problem. And, you know, I recently went on and on about TikTok. And uh, I think this fits into that conversation. But um, we, we, have a real, we have a real vulnerability. And it's uh, deeply intertwined with our economic relationship with China, which makes it even more difficult to deal with. And uh, yeah, so I spend a lot of time talking about that stuff. I kind of feel as a political, for a, the political problem with this, is like, I remember once, and I'm sure I get the details wrong, but years ago, um, I was watching this documentary about the Who, the band. And um, they were talking about how when they were like $10,000 in debt, they were freaking out. Like, how are we ever going to pay this back? We're ruined, you know? And then when they were $50,000 or 50,000 pounds in debt, you know, the manager said, guys, you got to really take this seriously now. This is like really serious. And they're like, oh my gosh, we have to, we have to change our ways, blah, 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 blah. And, um, and then when they were a hundred thousand, they're like, okay, this is our last chance, blah, blah, blah. And then when they were a million pounds in debt, they're like, ah, screw it. <laughs> what are you going to do? You know, and it kind of feels like that is with the China thing. Is that the problem is so big that, and you do get a sense that elites, and I think this is a this is a legitimate concern that elites are scared to talk about taking it too seriously because they think the way you have to take it seriously is to make is to arouse anti Chinese ethnic sentiment, and I don't want to do that. I don't know you don't want to do that, but at the same time. It just so happens that the the ethnicity controlling China is Chinese, and um, and you got to deal with that reality. And you have, and and the cross current of sort of you know if you look at like how Pelosi and De Blasio, you know, those guys said, you know, tried to turn the 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 COVID stuff racial. When you start talking about how the Chinese are penetrating every aspect of our lives, and it feels very yellow perily, and um. And I don't know how to talk about it in a way, I don't know how politicians can talk about it in a way that gets the public sufficiently worked up about it that you wouldn't worry it's going to unleash those kinds of bad, that kind of bad juju 
and all of this. Is that something in the policy area you guys talk about much? Yeah. So one of the ways that people like me deal with that, because it, it's a completely legitimate fear and concern. And frankly, just practically, if you don't preemptively deal with that, uh, you know, kind of anticipated critique, oh, you're just, you know, anti-Chinese. If you don't deal with that, you never really get to the substance of it. So the smartest and and I think true way to deal with that is is always to say that the fundamental problem is with the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, the ruling political elite in China, not the Chinese people. Um, and I, I believe that, and I think it's important to kind of stipulate that. You know, when I wrote about the TikTok piece maybe two weeks ago, one of the things I specifically said, I, I kind of outlined your, what you just said in terms of, I've tried to figure out why this concerns haven't gotten more traction in the policy community. And part of it is because I do think that you know, if, if you seed the ground, if you actually deal with something like TikTok, which is massively popular inside the United States, 130 million U.S. users, it's the same rationale for TikTok that we used for Huawei and for DJI, which we're still trying. DJI is a Chinese drone manufacturer, has 70% of the global market. Um, or, you know, ZTE, another Chinese telecommunications company. Those same rationales, which are I think, in my in my view, kind of watertight in terms of their logic, those apply to a lot of companies. And if you were to if you were going to go after this in a coherent fashion, it would be hugely disruptive. Um, and I just don't I don't know a way to avoid that. So I think the concerns that you're laying out and explain I think are real. I think that's one of the reasons. I think the the kind of identity or racial component to this is real. I think it needs to be factored, but. Because of all that, I specifically called in that ar- in that article. Look, I would be satisfied as at least a starting place for a, for a, a deliberate, comprehensive, covert action program uh, in the United States aimed at systematically and comprehensively denying the Chinese access to U.S. data and technology. Um, that would be a um, a large effort that would take some very aggressive engagement with industry. Um, and it would be helpful if we had an industry who recognized the challenge and, and kind of volunteered to get on board. But look, I mean, the reason why this feels so pressing to me is because we're moving into a geopolitical context where conflict or at least some type of confrontation with China is a very real possibility. And, um, and, and very serious people, you know, colleagues uh, of ours at AI and, and, and elsewhere who aren't prone toward hyperbole. You know, we're saying like, look, this is a real thing and it's a bipartisan assessment and, and you know, it's not guaranteed, it's not inevitable, but it is real in terms of a risk. And, you know, things that factor into this are stuff like, well, look, a lot of the semiconductors that are in the majority of our military capabilities and components are, are Chinese derived or, or at least, uh, der- you know, they've been fabricated in Asia where the Chinese have access to the supply chain and can do all kinds of interesting things and while we have programs dedicated to try and suss that out and, and, and close those gaps, I, I have low confidence that we've done that sufficiently effective. And um, we're just in a, we're in a, we're in a place where we're going to have to start making hard decisions geopolitically. And these types of exposures um, weaken our ability to do what we might need to do in the long term. Okay. Our moderator's privilege. I, I think we should walk back a second and um, on the assumption that at least some fraction of our listeners did not read your piece about TikTok. I've heard you talk about TikTok. We've talked about TikTok. I read your piece about TikTok, but um, there are at least some listeners out there who are saying, so what is this thing about TikTok? 
So yeah. what is your thing about TikTok? I'll, I'll try and keep this very short. TikTok is a, a social media uh, application. It is owned by a Chinese company called ByteDance. Um, and it has become the most popular social media platform in the United States. Um, it is it is good. I mean, if, if you're on, I'm not on it. Um, but you know, if you're on it, it, it has amazing algorithms that show you content that you like to see. And, uh, it's, it's very good. It also, like many other social media applications, collects a ton of information, but uh, there's been a lot of reporting that demonstrates that, that TikTok actually collects more than most. And the, if you look at their terms of service, it, the, the things that it collects includes all the normal stuff that, you know, your geolocation and your contacts, but it also includes things like your keyboard patterns uh, and and swipes it 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 follows the con- the activity that you do in other applications it knows um, your online viewing habits your online shopping habits it knows your content consumption habits it knows essentially everything it can know about your phone so it, it's grabbing information not just from your use of the app itself but your broader use of your mobile device in toto so it collects a lot of information. Well, because it's a company owned by a, a Chinese company, by law, it has to make all of the information that it collects available to the Chinese government. That same law also dictates that they deny that they're doing that, that they do not disclose their cooperation with the Chinese government. Um, they've denied this for years, just like Huawei and ZTE and everybody else does. Um, but it, you know, here recently, this has come up again, and I wrote the piece spe- specifically um, in response to the fact that about 80 hours of internal audio uh, from um, from TikTok had been leaked, and the the website BuzzFeed had done a report on it, and and on multiple occasions throughout that audio, TikTok executives and engineers just speak plainly and openly about how Chinese engineers and executives have access to US user data. So that was the that was the impetus behind the piece. My, you know, I in a very kind of slightly annoyed way, I began the piece with saying, like, no one likes and I told you so, but, you know, I freaking told you so. And I've been talking about this since 2017. And it's one of those things where in the in the intervening years from 2017 till now, the thing has grown by like 80% in the United States. And I'm just asking, like, when are we going to deal with this? This is not ambiguous anymore. What are we going to do about it? And so, um, again, I, uh, in the grand tradition of trial lawyers, I'm asking a question I know the answer to because I've heard you give it before, but um, what is the concern about them getting this data? It's not that like someone's going to take one into a, a skiff or is going to um, take one into the Oval Office you know, with their TikTok in the, running in the background and get cl- super classified information. That's not, that's not the security threat. Why is having all of this data go into China a national security issue rather than just sort of an icky civil libertarian issue. So there's a concept that um, uh, I want our listeners to understand, and it, it's the idea of what we call mosaic intelligence. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It's the idea of building this comprehensive picture through a thousand different pieces. And previously, this strategy in China was known as the thousand grains of sand strategy. And basically it was, look, we're going to hoover up every bit and byte of data we can because the ability to store it is essentially non-existent now. And because we've developed machine learning capabilities that allow us to actually sift through this stuff and get interesting insights. And even if it's encrypted, we're going to hoover that up too, because we're working on things like um, quantum computers that we suspect over the course of time will allow us to uh, exploit this information in the future. 
So one, when people say, well, why would they want TikTok data? One of the reasons is because they want all kinds of data, and this is just a, a huge resource. And again, it includes more than just the video that you take. It, it's all that other, what we call metadata. So let me start at the kind of comprehensive level, and I'll kind of go down in the funnel to the individual level in terms of risk. So comprehensive, they're gaining massive insights about our society, um, uh, what we do, how we do it, where we shop, where we go. And the reason that's important is because when we think about uh, strategic influence, that becomes really influential. So for example, if you're the Chinese government and you want to shape U.S. public opinion, well, you now have a depth of insight into how you know one-third of the country consumes media, where they turn, uh, what appeals to them, and how to engage with them in a way, or how to deny certain facts or certain narratives to one-third of, um, of the U.S. population. And, and we've seen them do specifically this type of activity uh, in Taiwan. So back in, I think it was 2018, they used a Taiwanese social media app um, to help a pro-Beijing politician get elected. Uh, as a as a as a regional political official who eventually ran but lost uh, for the presidency, and they it, it's been discovered and shown how they actually used the social media app as a means of influence the local population. So that's that's kind of one sense of it. There's also all that metadata that helps them build in the more strategic picture. So you can combine some of the metadata. So let's take the Huawei and camera footage that they were getting around military facilities, right? So we know they're getting that. Combine that with um, social media usage in that same geographic location, and you start mapping out the specific individual populations who are there, right? And from that, you can begin gaining interesting insight. Now, moving into the, the kind of local level, of course, any individual could potentially be blackmailed or manipulated or used. But let's say that you are the commanding officer of U.S. Strategic Command, and your daughter, in a moment of foolishness, just posted something truly stupid on TikTok. Well, that's a point of access. That's a point of exposure. That's that's something that can be used or manipulated. Um, and it's it's the kind of thing that, that fits into a broader capability of Chinese influence, both uh, overtly and covertly inside the United States. And then finally, thinking more long-term, you know, right now, and again, my kids aren't on TikTok, but let's for the moment say they are, Right now, my 17-year-old daughter, you know, she plans on being a writer, you know, for, for her life. But let's say, you know, in college, she gets a bug and all of a sudden decides, no, nope, you know what, I'm going to go in the national security field like my old man. And let's say she's really good at it. And at some point in the future, she's the director of CIA, you know, or something similar. In this kind of theoretical moment, the, the Chinese government could have a comprehensive portfolio on her life that includes not great things. Um, or at least advantages them in terms of building a psych profile on how she's going to make decisions and what she's going to know. And these are the kinds of things that, you know, the normal American doesn't think about. They shouldn't have to think about it. That's not their job to think about it. But it's the kind of thing that I have to think about. And that really does matter. And if you asked me, would I like to have a 20-year comprehensive social media profile of the Chinese political leader that I'm going to be sitting across the table from in two weeks – would I like to have that? And would that advantage me and my engagement with them? Absolutely all day long. Yeah. The, um, I mean, I can think of, I mean, again, I don't know this stuff nearly as well 
remotely as well as you do, but like um, the daughter of the general, she could pose something utterly harmless, but in the background, she can have that the fact that her dad is on vacation someplace at a time when knowing that he's not, you know, at the office is very valuable, right? And and like I think like in polling, um, you know, polling has limited utility, but it like good polling is good polling, and it's of, of great interest to policymakers in all sorts of realms, right? And the the a normally good poll has like a really good poll has like 2000 respondents. Now it's filtered and you have, you screen out the bad ones. So like it's a solid base and people get furious about the, the, the validity uh, the claims about the validity of polling. Um, and the response from, you know, social scientists is if you have a soup that has been simmering long enough, all you need is a spoonful to be able to tell you what the entire pot tastes like, right? And if you get the right spoonful of the population, so you think about like if 2,000 people well-filtered is good enough to tell you a lot about attitudes in a country of 330 million people, a sample size of 130 million people that not only has like all sorts of insight into their political views, but like their daily habits, their purchasing power, their purchasing habits, their who they travel with, when they travel, you could see how some AI program could really do a lot with that, right? Um, particularly when you figure out that a lot of the minor, I assume it's disproportionately young people, right? So like a lot of the time when you're, like my daughter's phone is deeply tied into my credit card and that kind of thing, you could start extrapolating pretty mosaically pretty quickly. Um, um, all right, so where to go with this? First of all, are we doing anything similar that you're allowed to say? You, we have this sort of inside joke that whenever um, people who know really cool stuff can't tell you the cool stuff, they say, as has been published, has been publicly published, or has been publicly stated, um, as a way to defend you against revealing classified cool stuff. But um, um, what is the closest we're coming to do likewise to the Chinese? Generally speaking, our intelligence community is really, really good. We're, um, we have broad collection capabilities, but I think it's pretty fair to say that we don't have, I mean, there, there's a reason why, why Facebook and Twitter and, and other social media apps are banned in China, right? That, that's not on accident. Um, in fact, um, the Chinese government just, uh, I don't remember if it was ByteDance or who it was, but they just fined one of their huge tech companies about a billion dollars precisely because um, some of their data was going to be made available to the U.S. So the Chinese understand this threat. It, you know, it's, it's the, the Chinese government is thinking like I am as a guy who knows like, look, I know what I would do with this information. And so they're actually arranging their society in such a way as to deny um, the outside world access to a lot of that information. So when you hear reports about the Chinese government getting serious about privacy, all that really means is how data is being used by um, foreign companies and governments, uh, and even sometimes the Chinese companies themselves, but it never has anything to do with Chinese government access. The Chinese government access always is kind of the hose is toned com com completely on. I can tell you this. I, I can tell you that the United States... Um, if you would have asked the, the, the National Security Agency, the NSA, our, our signals collection agency, uh, would they like to build the fifth generation 
telecommunications network inside China, they would have salivated and said yes, yeah, sure. you know, yes, because of all that we could do about it. Uh, we don't have that capability. We're not there doing that. Now there are some other ways that you can begin to get access like that. Um, but I will say, so on the one hand, I'm confident that the things in, in dark places that I'd be very pleased to know about that I don't currently know about, I feel good about that, generally speaking. I will also say, however, it has been publicly reported um, that our collection posture in China is it has been seriously degraded, both from a human intelligence perspective. So a couple of years, we had a, a, a CIA employee who exposed a huge portion of our human intelligence network, and it got wrapped up inside China, and we've been recovering ever since. Um, as well as the illegal disclosures by Edward Snowden, um, where the Chinese responded very aggressively on that and started locking down. Once they realized some of the technical collection that we could do, they started locking down a lot of their a, a lot of their technical uh, networks. And that's when they really started going great guns on things like um, quantum mm-hmm. encryption. Do you have a? I don't think I've ever asked you this. What do you think the real story of Edward Snowden is like? Was he a Russian asset? Was he always a Russian asset? Was the uh, was he a well-intentioned guy who got duped? What what is your take on Snowden? I don't know that he was always a Russian asset. I think he's certainly a Russian asset now. I mean, I think he's he's owned by the Russians completely now. You know, um, I think at the very least, he was a, a guy with a overinflated sense of himself and his, of his importance and of his role. I think during the Cold War. This is the kind of guy who would end up dead in a ditch somewhere. Um, I think he exposed um, all kinds of of issues. I think he caused a massive disruption between the government and the American industry that we're only now beginning to kind of reconcile and, and get over. I think that has that that itself has been a massive delay in getting us in the posture that you know I'm constantly advocating for, where this kind of voluntary cooperation between government and industry on these issues. Edward Snowden, I think, holds a huge uh, portion of the blame in terms of why we're not where we need to be. Um, I have no sympathy for the man. Uh, if we could get a hold of him, I'd like to watch him rot. Um, I think what he did was evil and wrong and unpatriotic. And, um, you know, I, I I hope that we have long institutional memory and that over the course of time, he ends up back in our hands one day. I'm glad that you have a nuanced position on this. Um, <laughs> uh, where do you, and where do you, just out of curiosity, like Julian Assange might actually get extradited. Um, was he always a Russian asset? So I don't, I don't know, but I would say that whole website, WikiLeaks, was. It's the kind of thing that um, a, a foreign intelligence service would make sure was always up, always had the resources that it needed, and um, and and you know, you were always feeding little tidbits to mm-hmm. to kind of keep it real. Mm-hmm. Whether Julian Assange knew that or not, whether he was willingly ignorant of it all, whether he was all in, who knows? I mean, there's it's weird because on the on on the kind of alt-right side of the of the US political spectrum, there's this weird affection for him. Uh, you know, Trump had said some things about him that were kind of positive. And um I think, you know, it's the same kind of thing. I, I think, you know, this guy was was clearly a problem for U.S. national security and 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 the publish publication of secrets like that is, um, I think a real problem. And um, yeah, I'm not a fan. Yeah, I mean, the the tell for me is always, and this applies to lots of people, you know, from Snowden, Greenwald to a certain extent, you know, Assange. 
that if the rhetoric is all about speaking truth to power, and yet they never speak any truths about China, Russia, North Korea, you go down a long list, and it's always like the UK and the United States. It doesn't mean they're not ideologically blinkered rather than like villainous spies, right? I mean, they could just be wrong. The West has always had a useful idiot problem. Um, but, you know, at some point, the distinction loses a difference if if you're only ever... I'll give you an example that I bring up often. Um, Gandhi, who I don't think was a spy for anybody. Right? It wasn't anybody's asset per se. But his whole, uh, his whole nonviolence thing, he only used that against Western countries. So, like, he told the UK that they should surrender to the Nazis. He said, give up your beautiful island, give up your homes, blah, 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 but don't give in to violence, whatever. He never said to Hitler, hey, cut out the violence, right? Um, he said to the Jews of Europe that what they should probably just do is commit mass suicide, um, which, to me, is not a great public policy proposal. And, um, and so, at some point, the double standard is actually evidence of a single unconfessed standard. And so it was obvious to me that WikiLeaks was anti-US, not anti-abuse of power. Um, and you can do that for all, you know, Noam Chomsky crowd, you know, all around, and some for ideological reasons, some because they're bought and paid for, some because it's a murky thing where they're a little bought and paid for, but they still aren't so bought and paid for that they don't think they have integrity. And that happens, I think, a lot in the sort of espionage kind of national security world where you, you pay people enough to keep the light bill on so that they can, but not so much that they feel like they're corrupt. And so anyway, I, I don't know, it's a digression, but it just, I think it's an interesting thing. Well, I think, I think the broader point there for me is, is in one sense, I don't really care about the individual's motivations, right. right? I'm doing a net assessment on the impact of our national security. And so whether he means to be I don't know, a speaker of truth and a, and, a, and a paragon of virtue, that's all fine and good. Doesn't really matter in one sense when I when I start think when I start adding up the actual cost to our our national security and foreign policy. I, but I'll push back on that just for a second. Um, it do, the motivation does matter in one sense. Like maybe we should drag David in here to invoke what the actual law says. But like, if you're stealing national security secrets and giving them to the New York Times. I'll put it this way. If you're a New York Times reporter and you are receiving national security secrets and you're publishing them and you're doing it to get the truth out there in a journalistic sense, the legal sanctions that against you are different, it would seem to me, or should be different than if you're just a straight up spy who's taking stuff trying to hurt America, right? If you're just like taking money and you're doing it as a mercenary thing and you know you're doing it to help a foreign power versus you're being manipulated by a foreign power as a journalist who thinks you're just trying to get a scoop feels to me that's an important moral distinction, even if at the end of that food chain, your threat assessment is the same because the real damage is having the, the information get out there. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. That, that's me leaning into my role in all this, right? So number one, the the law makes those distinctions. Right, right. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I'm happy for, for the Davids of the world and the Sarahs of the world to kind of litigate that and go down and uh, and, 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 you know, kind of pursue justice in that sense. And I obviously want justice in that sense. And of course I recognize a distinction between, um, you know, some of the New York times reporting on, um, on the Snowden disclosures 
versus what Snowden disclosed. You know, right, I, right. I see the distinction there. That being said, the kinds of things that I used to be paid for was, what's this mean for us, right? Forget how it got out. It's out. What does this mean for us? And and, and what's what's the level of damage here? And, and how do we start mitigating it? Um, so I I do... I do tend to think that way. And I, and I do think that some of the firefighters um, don't really care about the motives behind how the fire got started. They just put out the that's fire. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. All right. So, uh, switching gears a little bit. Um, there was also this news that China can start making, um, much cooler chips than, than we thought they could, or that we, we thought they would be able to at any time soon. Do I have that mm-hmm. right? Is it the, yep. the, the the SMIC chips? Yep. SMIC is uh, a Chinese uh, semiconductor maker because SMIC stands for Semiconductor Manufacturing International Corp. You know, so. Um, but it, it's China's largest chip maker. And wh- what we found is um, we got a hold of some chips that they had started shipping. The, they're called 7 nanometers. So semiconductors are, are typically referred to or measured by how, how many uh, transistors they can get in a, in a, in a small portion. And so the smaller the number, the, the more efficient, more typically cutting edge um, that a chip is. So a seven nanometer in the United States, we do seven nanometer. Uh, at, at, we can produce those at scale. Previously, before we got a hold of these chips, we reverse engineered them. And what it is, is it's a Bitcoin mining chip. And up until we got a hold of these chips that just recently got it shipped, uh, we thought that the only, that, that the best that the Chinese could build domestically was a 14 nanometer chip, which is about a decade behind everybody else. So we were a little bit surprised when we found that, oh, they have been able to domestically produce this, this much smaller chip. That, that was a surprise to us. The way, we have, the way the United States and the West has been kind of putting a governor on China's ability to become independent of the global semiconductor supply chain is we have helped to withhold these really important pieces of equipment that are necessary for anything smaller than seven nanometer. They're called photolithography machines. And uh, we've prevented their export to China. So what what we're thinking is, is that this seven nanometer chip is probably the top end, the most sophisticated chip that they could produce using the equipment that they have. It's unlikely that they'll be able to get much smaller and that they're likely dealing with quality control issues and, and manufacturing and shipping issues uh, because these things are really, really difficult to make. Nevertheless, the the concerning thing for people like me is, is, wow, they were able to skip, you know, five generations of chips and us not know about it and actually be able to produce these things, not as a one-off, but actually at a sufficient scale to where they can actually start shipping them. And that just means that, you know, our window where we are exercising a meaningful uh, semiconductor advantage uh, over the Chinese in terms of what we can produce, um, that window is shrinking. And, and that has real implications for what we're going to do long-term as we think about securing our own supply chain, building our own domestic capacity, and you know what our partners and allies are going to be able to do for us in the long-term. So I, I still think it's kind of hard for normals, um, of which I count myself, to understand why, like we talked about on here before, like, there's an argument that one of the main reasons China hasn't taken Taiwan yet is they want to get their chip manufacturing plant complex, whatever, uh, intact. And the, and the Taiwanese know that, which is so they've rigged it to go if the Chinese set foot on there. But the idea that 
that there's stuff that a military power needs to do that it can only do if it gets enough of these chips. I mean, like, can't you just use two 14 nanometer chips instead of one seven nanometer? I mean, like, can't you can't can't you do this with cathode ray tubes and and tinfoil at scale to compensate? Um, why is it that are the are the rockets that much better with the better chips that it actually because when we look at what Russia is doing, it's throwing a lot of dumb bull, dumb ballistics at Ukraine, and it seems to be working pretty well for it. What 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 is it so special about the chips that requires that it? changes timelines and timescales and, and everything else? Yeah, so it's a great question, and it's it's kind of a two-parter. So the first part is we're not just talking about military applications. I'll come back to military applications in a moment, but we're, what we're talking about is, you know, the modern economy, you know, and and so techno- as, as technology is more deeply integrated into just the normal economy from everything from washing machines to, you know, to televisions um, and, you know, commercial aircraft and, and all kinds of stuff, um, those things are, are, you know, increasingly sophisticated and increasingly, um, uh, needing to be specialized. So the economics of semiconductors have changed over the last decade, where in the past it was essentially everything just needed to be kind of smart. And so you made these general purpose tech, uh, semiconductors and that was good. But then we started moving to a place to where, oh, you know what, we can, we can make this meaningfully smart. We, we, can, we can build semiconductors that enable unique capabilities or, or, you know, or they're more power efficient or you know, whatever your priority is there. And so that actually changed the economics of semiconductors to where it's now much more profitable for semiconductor manufacturers to build these specialized, um, tailor-built uh, integrated circuits that, that really improve either power consumption or uh, computational power or some type of key capability. Uh, and so, so you've got a constrained supply chain. There's only so many people that can build these types of capabilities. Um, and they're increasingly important to just your broader economic prosperity and capability, particularly the type of economy that's going to build the wealth necessary to have a modern military. All right, so then you pivot to the military applications. But as artificial intelligence moves from marketing to reality, uh, the thing, one of the key enablers of that, of that evolution is chipsets that are tailored built um, to, to realize really interesting capabilities and efficiencies. Um, the kinds of things that would enable, for example, um, hyperson- nuclear-armed hypersonic missiles to do real-time navigation and uh, defense avoidance at hypersonic speeds autonomously, you know, that that takes a special kind of chip, and they have a strategic interest in realizing capabilities like that. Uh, when you consider something like the United States missile defense system, right? That's that's what those missiles are tailored uh, to defeat. And unfortunately, it's not the kind of thing where instead of a seven nanometer, you just you, you know you just use Two fourteen nanometers. Uh, it's 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 you got to have the special thing. Uh, the reason why. Um, so the company you mentioned in Taiwan is TSMC. Uh, they have long put faith in what they call the silicon shield. That so long as they constitute you know the the beating heart of the semiconductor global supply chain, that that China won't won't move in. Well, 
this is where things like the SMIC chip comes in. Because if China is able to, or at least it believes it might soon be able to, build chipsets that are on par with what TSMC can do, well, obviously the, the Silicon Shield goes away, right? And, and that really becomes a real problem. And right now, 90% of the U.S. semiconductors, uh, those kind of cutting-edge semiconductors that the U.S. imports are, are made by TSMC. And so there's also a rationale, I think we've talked about this in the past, where China could just decide, you know what, look, if we can't take Taiwan and get TSMC, yeah, that, that stinks and, and that's going to be a problem. But it may be a bigger problem for the U.S. because we're used to not having it and the U.S. is totally dependent upon it. Mm-hmm. So there's an incentive there to kind of take that action if there's some other political motivation for a forcible reunification. So this new uh, this legislation that I've been talking about, the CHIPS Act, does this make anything better? Whereas I, I, I will confess I have not followed it super closely. Um, like where does it stand and, and what does it do? So the first thing I have to admit is it's got problems. There are things about it that I don't like, um, but that's pretty much every piece of legislation that actually gets passed. Um, I think I would put this in the category of necessary but not sufficient, right? I, I think I think the the aim of it is to provide, you know, bluntly, uh, U.S. subsidies to semiconductor manufacturers in an effort to diversify the supply chain around the globe including building more fabrication plants uh, here in the United States, fabrication plants being the place where you actually build these semiconductors, um, and helping these companies make the types of investments that are going to be necessary for their kind of long-term growth and, and um, yeah, ability to do good things. Um, one of the reasons why... Like, I'm a free marketer. I would much prefer that we just kind of outcompeted these guys. But frankly, this isn't really about competition. Um, this is about a, a, an essential capability whose supply chain is simply not resilient or redundant enough to meet our national security concerns. And the, the, the fabrication of these semiconductors is overwhelmingly done in Asia. And they are done there because the governments in Asia, in Japan and South Korea and other places, you know, they're subsidizing these fabrication plants to the tune of you know, trillions of dollars. And that's just a hurdle that um, a straight up competition isn't going to overcome. You know, that's just not, it's just, it's not going to happen. And we've waited long enough to where we have a compelling and, and pressing national security interest to engage. And so the CHIPS Act does that. And so we're going to spend caboodles of money on, I mean, is, is this sort of like, a, you know, the Human Genome Project where it's not a contract that's going out to any one, you know, sort of company or, I mean, what are the economics of it? Because this always, this kind of thing always makes me nervous. Well, and again, this is where I think it's not perfect. Um, but we've allowed ourselves to get into a position where there are no good options. Um, so I think in one sense, as someone who supports the passage of the CHIPS Act, I still would admit we're essentially throwing money at the problem. I mean, like, we're just realizing, gosh, we're in a deep hole. We're not quite sure how we're going to get out of it. Somebody stroke a check and let's see what we can do. And because of the way the legislative process has gone, so there are some things that I would have liked to have seen um, in legislation that aren't. So I would have liked to have seen an explicit, comprehensive ban on any of this money being used by chip manufacturers uh, for investments in China, for example. Like, I'm not giving you money, Intel, so that you can build another fabrication plant in in China. Um, 
that type of an explicit ban isn't present, but there are other guardrails that are in place that at least give me some improved concern. Um, I don't think that this solves the problem. I think, honestly, it is at best an economic shot in the arm. It 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 hopefully will demonstrate uh, to um, fabricators that the United States is actually serious about this, that, that there's room for us to improve our regulatory posture and other hindrances that have prevented fabrications from being built in the United States and that there is, in fact, an appetite. I think in one sense... The money is real and it can do good, but it's also a demand signal that I hope communicates to industry, hey, we, we're serious about a rethink and, and we're interested in, in what the semiconductor industry can come up with in terms of building out both reshoring and nearshoring um, semiconductor fabrication capabilities. And what's the timeline for this? This thing is going to get like they're going to they're going to get the, the shingle hanging on this thing by when? Well, I mean, I, the hope is that there's a final vote, um, you know, before the August recess. Um, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I hope that's the case. Uh, at the very least, I think it will get done uh, by the end of the year. Oh, no, no, I didn't mean the legislation. I mean, like, let's oh. say the legislation passes by the end of the year. When does chip one roll off the conveyor belt, you know, at the new U.S. number one chip manufacturing plant? Yeah, so minimum five years, probably closer to 10 what could go wrong? Well, exactly. I mean, <laughs> it's one of those things where it's one of the things where the resources can begin doing good things. Mm -hmm. For example, enabling companies to make decisions that they might not make otherwise. Right. Um, but when we talk about actually building facilities, so you know, TSMC is going to build a a fab in a fabrication facility uh, in Arizona. Well, that's already been delayed, and part of the reason it's delayed is because of the regulatory requirements for building that kind of a thing. And, you know, so right now our, our left and right hand are, are kind of fighting each other, not actually cooperating. And this goes to our broader point that we kind of started with at the beginning. You know, I, you've got someone like me who feels like this is really important, guys. We, we've got to get our head straight. We've got compelling national interest to get it straight. But I think one of the reasons why we're so slow to actually respond to all this is because it's incredibly complex and it requires a fundamental rethink on a lot of political sacred cows uh, across the, the the political spectrum in terms of regulatory postures and big government and big uh, you know in, industrial policy and 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 big business and of course we've got this domestic conversation about you know quote quote unquote big tech and all that is just kind of static that um, it's not unimportant I'm I, I'm not dismissive of it but in the conversation that I think is most important and the conversation I'm trying to have it's just static. And it's it's slowing progress um, on an issue that I think is just super important. All right, so I gave this teaser last Friday about how I was like all of a sudden really interested in in quantum entanglement stuff because and truth be told, I got into some of this physics stuff in high school. I had this fantastic geometry teacher, and I got into this huge argument with him about he was saying comparing two triangles on a blackboard. And I was like, well, how do you know they're not the same triangle? And he says, well, they're in two different places. And I'm like, and it became this very, like, uh, angels on the head of a pin, almost theological argument about ontology and whatever. And I got down this rabbit hole about the physics stuff. And then um, I was talking to somebody last week, as, as you know, and got sort of raised on 
this quantum entanglement stuff. And I had not realized that we had actually straight up done some real world stuff with this where we, in effect, transferred information. To say it was a file is a bit grandiose, right? Transferred information from one place to another with no wires, with no radio waves, with no connection of any kind other than, for want of a better word, magic, right? Um, <laughs> um, can you do a better job of explaining how this works or what, what, what this is or where it could be going? Sure. So in, in, in quantum physics, uh, there's this uh, dynamic that's called entanglement. And the, and the idea is that, that, that two bodies can develop a relationship so that the state of one automatically dictates the state of other. So that effectively, you have the same thing in two places at the same time, right? So the best metaphor I've been able to come up with, and it's imperfect, is imagine you have two spinning dimes on opposite sides of the universe, and you stop the one and it comes up heads. Well, you know then, because it's entangled with that other dime, that it is now stopped on heads as well. Mm -hmm. Now, the, uh, the appeal of that capability in terms of data transfer is, one, it's very, very fast. It's essentially instantaneous. Um, it's not disrupted by time and, and, and space, so distance doesn't really matter. And it's really secure because where data tends to be most um, vulnerable is in transit. Um, and if something is encrypted, you can kind of figure out the key and you can decrypt it. But this is a much more kind of fundamental relationship. So what we've what we've done, so the Chinese actually did something similar back, you, you mentioned teleportation. So the Chinese used quantum entanglement and they teleported or moved a photon from the earth to space using entanglement. Uh, and that was, you know, over the course of like 300 miles. And then they've done other things um, where um, they've, they've communicated data. I think, I want to say it was like 9,000 miles uh, using a quantum encrypted, you know, internet. So, you know, quantum is the stuff of like mind-bending magic uh, when we talk about teleportation and, 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 and things like that. And the interesting thing is that the science has really advanced significantly over the last decade mm -hmm. in, in ways to where quantum science or quantum computing is now like a real, this is like a real potential thing. And it's the kind of thing that could so fundamentally like reshape essentially all science because of the level of, of, of implication that it has in terms of what we'd be able to know, what we'd be able to do. That uh, I'm, 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 I'm struggling to think of a, of a parallel discovery that, that if we were actually able to do this, this would be a, a big deal. Yeah. I mean, on the magic thing, the best analogy I can come up with, not to explain the science, because it's not explainable to normals, including me, is voodoo dolls. Remember, like, in <laughs> yep. the TV shows yeah, when right. you were a kid, that's you know, good. it's like, I poke the voodoo doll of Klon from a thousand miles away, and you instantly get a pain in the back of your neck, because, and that's basically quantum entanglement, right? There's no, there are no wires, there's no radio waves, there's nothing to intercept, it's magic, and because it goes through the, 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 the down under, whatever they call it in Stranger Things, and just appears <laughs> on the other side, um, it just, it's instantaneous, and that's messed up, 
(laughs) (laughs) And um, the fact that, like, serious people talk about it in terms of teleportation, which I don't think gets the right, it's not the right magic, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, metaphor. And and, and it is sort of a magic metaphor. It's not a real metaphor. Um, But, um, or a real explanation about what's going on. But um, I just, you know, I, I worry that this is sort of like, Infinity Stone, Thanos's glove kind of stuff that I look at our current policymakers and I'm like, I'm not sure I want them to have this. Um, and I'm not, and I am no Luddite, right? I am no like, let's keep the genie in the bottle kind of guy when it comes to technology, but like more general research before we start doing anything that opens up the space time continuum and dinosaurs show up, you know, in Times Square. It just, it's very weird stuff. Yeah, well, and the other thing is, is that especially on quantum computing, this is an area of science where the Chinese, um, as one example, uh, could be right there with us, and in certain applications, could be ahead of us. Uh, and I so, assume you need one, good chips for this. Uh, you do, you do, <laughs> you you definitely you you need the Cadillac of of of, of, of chips uh, to do this kind of stuff. But you know, just to kind of put this in a in a real meaningful time frame, uh, Google, who is one of the pioneers of the science, has a roadmap to where I think they realize a, a general quantum computer uh, within the decade. Now, who knows if they'll actually be able to do that? But they've said that publicly, so that gives you a sense of some of their confidence and what they feel like they're being able to do. And it may very well be the case that. You know, it's a private sector actor who realizes that type of capability before the government. Of course, it's also maybe the case where um, if the government had this capability, this would be one of the most closely guarded secrets we had because of the because of what it would enable. And that would be awesome. I hope that we have that somewhere buried deep in a mountain. But, you know, I don't so, know. So I mean, when we say this, like, what would be a reasonable example of what it would enable that would be such a game changer. Okay, so let's talk about quantum sensing. So the encryption thing we always talk about, and that just means like, look, you've got a computer fast enough to break any encryption, you know, that out there in a matter of seconds. Quantum sensing. So because of things like entanglement, uh, essentially the idea is that we'd be able to turn the oceans transparent. So one of the one of the challenges with the nuclear triad is uh, enemy nuclear-capable submarines. So submarines who can park off our coast, we'd never be able to see them, and then launch nuclear missiles before we could respond. Well, quantum sensing um, would potentially eliminate that threat. We would essentially be able to see uh, and and know the the precise location uh, of, of enemy nuclear submarines, no matter where they were, no matter how deep they were, that kind of thing. Through through what means? I mean, when you say quantum sensing, what what are the quantum sensing and how are they sensing it? So There's a little bit of the science but, or of the, of the magic, but basically it's you now have sensors that are simultaneously able to collect at the, the quanta level, the quantum level. So you uh-huh. actually start noticing disruptions in the, molec- the molecular structure of the ocean. Mm-hmm. But you've also got quantum computers that are sufficiently powerful enough to process that data, that data uh-huh. right? So that, that's, those, that's the mix. You're able to collect and process the information using you know, quantum sensors. Um, so that's, that's one example. And of course, that would apply to things like stealth planes and, and stuff like that. Sort of like you know, the old science fiction chaos theory thing about a butterfly flaps, it wing, flaps its wings and there's a hurricane on the other side of the planet, right? It metaphorically 
quantum sensing with quantum computing could figure out what's going to happen with the butterflies flapping on wings on the other side of the planet kind of thing. That's right. Yeah. And well, and so that's, that's another example. So let's, let's take a positive example in terms of what this would enable in terms of medical research. So right now when we do medical research and we, and we're thinking about uh, treatments for, you know, cancer, at, at some level, it, it always boils down to a hypothesis. Like, well, we know when we mix these two compounds, it produces this result, and we think that this will happen to the cancer cell if we, if we kind of build this compound. And, okay, let's introduce it and let's observe what we see. All right, it looks like it's doing that. Or, nope, it, doesn't, it didn't do what we thought it would do. Or it, does we it, don't, and it does it in 10% of patients, but not in, in 90% of patients, or vice versa, right? Exactly, yeah. precisely. But we don't really know what's going on at the molecular level. Mm-hmm. Right, we're we're just kind of observing. We're kind of introducing new variables and then observing, and then drawing conclusions from that. Well, with with a with quantum computing and and, and quantum uh, kind of science, you could actually get down to that molecular level and actually observe. Okay, so what's ha- okay? So the N two is attaching to the three C, and you know this is creating this kind of interesting connection between these two molecules and so on and so forth. And then you've got the the computational power to actually model all of that. So you begin understanding what's happening at the molecular level, then you can model it proactively. And now we're doing things with medicine that we've just never been able to do, where I'm actually able to model in a real um, granular way um, potential treatments and potential cures. And that would, you know, be a huge improvement in terms of efficiency and focusing research and, and enabling other medical research that would dramatically improve human life. We would also understand cancer at a molecular level, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and and those kinds of things. So this is really this is really important stuff. It's another example is um, maybe it would enable an understanding of physics that would allow us to build batteries, let's say the size of a um, of a tractor trailer that could power a city. Now I don't know if that's an application. But that's the type of physics that we're talking about. And so imagine the world-changing reality of that. Like if we could power an entire city like Washington, D.C. with a tractor-trailer with one battery, like that would change everything. And, you know, that's a direct application of the types of stuff we're talking about. Yeah, and presumably it would at least help figure out cold fusion, which is sort of the same thing in the from a different angle. Um, yeah. Um, magic. Yeah, it's magic. It is straight-up magic. So are you, Klon. Thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. And uh, obviously, we'll have you back. And um, thanks for doing this. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Jonah. Thanks for having me. Okay, so uh, Klon teleported out of the uh, conversation, out of the studio. And um, again, you should subscribe to The Current, his newsletter, which is like always weeks, months, or years ahead of where this conversation is and where it's going. And it's extremely useful. Um both in a sort of just general educational way, but also if you're all involved in these issues, um, well, if you're all involved in these issues, you probably already subscribe. But if you want to be more fluent on these issues, you should. And you should become a member of the Dispatch more generally because it'll make you a more well-rounded and, um, and, and, and hopeful citizen. So uh, with that, uh, thanks to everybody for uh, listening. Um, thanks to everybody, all the recent new signups uh, as members. And um, that's all I got. So I'll see you next time. No, you won't. It's a podcast. <laughs> <laughs>